So Revelation chapter 6, and I want us to read the whole chapter, but we're only going to look at verses 1 through 8 this week, and then we'll come back next week and look at verses 9 through 17. Tonight I want us to talk about the story of ordinary human history. That's what I think is revealed in verses 1 through 8. And then I want us to talk next week about how God's story, His story, turns. We'll see as the seals are unbroken on this scroll that movement is happening in the story of human history, in the story of God's work among His people. And as we see that movement happening and as we see God's hand at work, it will call to mind what our place is and how how we find ourselves trusting God in the midst of difficult things. Revelation chapter 6, let's read this in its entirety. John says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened the four living... Excuse me. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse... And his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I heard, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked. And behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? 
John told us in chapters 4 and 5 that he was called up higher. He heard a voice that brought him, transported him into the presence of God and the Lamb. And in chapter 4, John told us what the presence of God, the one who reigns upon the throne, the Lord God Almighty, he told us what the presence of God looks like. You remember, he didn't tell us much about the person of God because to describe the person of God is a difficult thing because God is not an embodied being. He is spirit. And so what John did was describe what he heard and what he saw around the presence of the throne. In chapter 5, John told us about what he saw next to the throne, between the throne and the four living creatures, that there was this one who is the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John told us that both the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, are worthy to receive power and honor and glory and blessing and majesty. They're worthy. John is giving us this vision that he receives from Jesus himself that at the heart of heaven is God himself who is innately worthy because he's innately holy. And everything that God teaches us and reveals to us about himself has bearing for how we see the rest of what comes in this unfolding story of God's plan to redeem the world. Because there will be some great things, some mighty, terrible, awesome things described in this book. And as we hear the descriptions of the wrath of the Father poured out upon humanity, even as you hear in the breaking of the sixth seal at the end of chapter 6, you find yourself wondering, how could anyone make it? How could anyone survive? Is there mercy for anyone? And so John first has told us about the innately holy one who does save a people for himself and is worthy of the worship of all nations and tribes and tongues so that we know when this one pours out wrath, he does it justly. And when this one saves, he does it justly. John said that there was a scroll in the hand of the one who was seated on the throne, the Lord God Almighty. And this scroll was written in front and on back and it was sealed with seven seals. You and I, we may not think a whole lot in our day about uh, seals. Uh, the most that I can relate to this idea is from uh, my time in high school when uh, we needed to send transcripts off to college and you'd go to the uh, counselor's office and request a transcript and they would print a transcript and they'd impress it, emboss it with the mark of the school and they'd seal it up in an envelope and then they'd send it on and on the back of the envelope it would say if this seal has been broken then it's not to be taken as authentic. In our day we don't do as much with physical seals. We have password protection, don't we? We have all sorts of codes and, and, and letters and numbers and characters and put this special thing at the end of that password and change it every 90 days. And if you don't, we're going to give you one to change it to so that nobody hacks it. The problem is you can't even hack into it. 
But John saw this scroll in the hand of the Lord God Almighty and it contained the story of His plan for His world that He created for His glory. And John said there was a search of heaven and earth. Where is one who's worthy to open the scroll? And of course, to be worthy to open the scroll is to have the same authority and the same power and the same innate righteousness and the same purity that the Father has. And so they didn't find anyone until the Lamb came forward. And it's the Lamb who's worthy. It's the Lamb who has the authority. It's the Lamb who's innately holy. It's the Lamb who is perfectly pure. It's the Lamb who has the right to unveil the Father's plan because the Lamb and the Father are one. And there's praise and adoration and majesty at the end of chapter 5 as they're rejoicing that one is going to come and open the scroll. And chapter 6 begins the breaking of this scroll. The thing that you have to set at, at the heart of this before you even dive into what this scroll contains is the reality that chapter 6 in the breaking of these seals only tells us what was going on around the story of the scroll itself. It is not the story of the scroll. Chapter 6 unveils the breaking of six of the seven seals. But until the seventh seal is broken on the scroll, we don't actually know what the scroll contains. And so chapter 6 describes what's in each of the first six scrolls. And those things are on the periphery. They are, they are outside of the heart of what is in this message that God has for his people. Now why is that significant? I think it's significant because of this. I think chapter 6 and the breaking of these six seals is not telling us just about something that is going to happen long down the road, down the corridor of human history, but particularly the first four seals that are broken in chapter 6. The first seal that's broken and reveals to us the white horse. The second seal that reveals to us the red horse. The third seal that reveals to us a black horse. The fourth seal that reveals to us a pale horse. That each of these seals with their horses and their riders bear a message about ordinary human history. The kind of thing that you and I are involved in, right? here and right now. Is there a message about what will come? Absolutely. And chapter 6, at the breaking of the sixth seal, we'll talk about next week, will fling us forward, I believe, to the end of human history and to the great day of the Lamb and tell us about what it's like when that great day comes. And chapter 7 will give us this wonderful, wonderful Comfort as we think about how God numbers his people and about how God has a people that are perfectly numbered. He accounts for them all and yet they're so great that they're myriads and thousands that we can't even begin to number. And then in chapter 8, the seventh seal will be broken. And when that seventh seal is broken and silence occurs in the heavenly place, and bowls and trumpets begin to be found. 
we'll begin to see the story of what is to come. But the first four seals particularly tell us not about what is to come, but about what is. This is us. This is our story. This is ordinary human history. When you think about this scroll, in the background is the scroll that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And this scroll reveals to us the story of both the salvation of God's people and the judgment of the wicked. When we think about this scroll and the six seals that are broken in chapter 6, we realize that there is so much contained in what God tells us about our own story and his role in ordinary history. And one of the things that must be thought about even now in anticipation of the breaking of the seventh seal and the revelation of seven trumpets and the blasting of the seventh trumpet and the revelation of seven bowls, as judgment comes in increasing measure, one of the things that we have to consider is what are we to do with the interludes between the, the sixth and seventh seals, between the sixth and seventh trumpets. There are these interludes that, that seem to move us in different directions, not quite linear. They jump ahead and then bring us back almost like a spring. And I think... I think Bill Cook, the New Testament professor at Southern Seminary, I think he's on to something when he says that the sixth seal and the sixth trumpet, they're almost like flash forwards. They take us ahead in time and they tell us about what's going to be, even though we're telling a linear story, we're jumping ahead to the end and we're getting a little picture of what it will be. And then we come back. And we settle back into the ordinary story, to the course chronologically of what is. Think about these these seals that we find in Revelation chapter 6. One of the things that I think is helpful here is to compare these seven seals with Jesus' Olivet Discourse. You read about that in Mark chapter 13 or Matthew chapter 24. And I think it's helpful to see there's a correlation between these passages. That John is writing down what he's been told and what he's seen. And at the same time, he's leaning upon what he knows from his own earthly experience of the ministry and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we look at these at these things that are revealed, these seals that are broken, there's good, there's good coordination, there's good correlation to the teaching of the Olivet Discourse as Jesus prepared his disciples for what was to come. Let me give you just a few passages to note as you think about the correlation between these two, and then we're going to look specifically at these four horsemen and their riders. So when we think about the first seal that's broken in Revelation 6, verses 1 to 2, I think that correlates to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. Revelation 6, 1 to 2, the first seal, to Matthew 24, verse 14. The second seal, Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4, 
I think coordinates to Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 to 7. So Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4, to Matthew 24, 6 and 7. The third seal is Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6, and it correlates also to Matthew 24 and verse 7. The fourth seal is Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8, and it correlates to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 8. The fifth seal that we'll talk about next week, Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, correlates to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 9. And then the sixth seal that we see in this chapter, Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17, coordinates to Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. In the first, four, first eight verses, the lamb breaks each of the first four seals. And as he does, four horses ride forth on the earth as instruments with divine purpose. White, red, black, and ashen or pale. The background here is Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 1 following verses where the prophet is given a vision of four chariots drawn by the horses of different colors. Red, black, white, and dappled gray. These chariots ride out to the four winds to patrol the earth as instruments of God's wrath upon the enemies of his people. So what do I think these four seals stand for? The first seal that's broken reveals a white horse with its rider. And I believe this stands for the accomplishment of the kingdom mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. The accomplishment of the kingdom mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second seal that you see in Revelation 6 verses 3 and 4 reveals a red horse with its rider. And I think it stands for warfare and death. The third seal broken in verses 5 and 6 brings a black horse with its rider and it reveals economic destruction, financial ruin, need, want, and poverty. The fourth seal in verses 7 and 8 brings the pale horse and its rider. And it's the revelation of death, death the act and death the place. And it's also the revelation of intense, intense difficulty on the face of the earth. We'll see that in a moment. But look back at the first seal. John says in chapter 6 and verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. It's difficult for us to understand precisely who this rider is. There are many theories. Uh, there, One of the theories is that this is a, a precursor, maybe a vision of Jesus himself, only, only that can't be, because... The Lamb is the one who's orchestrating this event. 
The Lamb is the one who's showing us what's going on, who's revealing what's happening in human history, who's telling us about what's contained in these scrolls. The Lamb stands outside of what happens inside of these events. So what is it? We'll look at a few of the details. He says first that it's it's a white horse and and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. So the fact here that this is a white horse stands out to be a symbol of victory, of power, of authority, of control. And the fact that he's given a crown means that he's accomplished something. He's been made victorious. He's, been, uh, he's had the opportunity to succeed at his task. And the fact that he is conquering and to conquer means that the work is ongoing and accomplished. It's already begun. It's already settled. It's already certain. It, it has happened. He is conquering, but he is also going to conquer. It is something that is yet undone. I've told you before that one of my favorite theologians is George Eldon Ladd. And G. Ladd talks about this and he points to the fact that this is not Jesus himself, but it is Jesus's mission. That what's symbolized here in the revealing of this of this white horse with its rider who comes conquering and to conquer is the kingdom mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus promised in the Olivet Discourse that his word would go forward and the disciples would be made of all nations. That his kingdom task would be accomplished in all the earth. And so as we give thought to the fact that Jesus had a mission in the world for his gospel to advance and his kingdom to be built, and the fact that here there is white, a symbol of purity and authority and power and control and righteousness that is both accomplishing its work even as its work has been accomplished, it's pointing, I think, to the fact that this mission of the Lord Jesus Christ will take place, it will be accomplished, it will bring to pass. Lad says that the writer is not Christ himself, but symbolizes the proclamation of the gospel in all the world. The crown is a symbol whose meaning is expressed in the words he went out conquering and to conquer. It doesn't necessarily mean complete and utter conquest, but it does mean that the proclamation of the gospel will win its victories. It will be preached effective in all the world And in spite of an evil and hostile environment characterized by human hatred, strife, and opposition, the gospel will make its way victoriously in all the world. There's a second seal. And the second seal John talks about in verses 3 and 4. Look there with me. He says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Clearly, I think that we would recognize that this is an image of bloodshed, of warfare, of organized, systematic destruction. When we look back at the time period in which John is writing and we think about 
Roman history, one of the things we know is that it was not a time of great warfare. And part of the reason that it wasn't a time of great warfare is because the Romans had amassed such military power and had caused it to reach into such far places in the known world that everyone feared the hand of the Romans. They had the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that, that their citizens walked free and unharmed without fear of retribution because their military force was so powerful in the earth. And yet even as we recognize that John's time period may not have been one of great warfare, we cannot deny that it was one of a great militarized police state. When there were powers and forces and rulers always on guard, always willing to destroy an uprising, always willing to put down a rebellion, always ready to shed blood in order to secure peace. What John sees here is that a part of the ordinary story of human history is the shedding of blood, is warfare, is the destruction of the peace of mankind. Remember that Jesus in the Olivet Discourse talked about the fact that we would hear of what? Wars and rumors of war. It's a part of our life. It's not just something that was a part of the ancient world. It's a part of our world, right? Uh, We even live in the world where we cannot seem to figure out if we are at war or not because the warfare seems to never end in our world. It's one campaign and one battle and one one advancement after another. And seemingly the days in which we live, it's tied to one administration after another. Are we at war or are we not at war? It seems to go by the ballot box in our own day. We live in a world where peace has been destroyed because of the wickedness of the human heart and the bloodshed that man brings against mankind. It's not something that is just at the end of human history. It's a part of history now. The third seal in verses 5 and 6, John says this, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. There's a little word that we call inflation. And it's at work here. Because what John is visioning with this black horse and its rider that carries a scale in his hand is economic downturn, financial ruin, want, poverty, and need. Ordinarily in the world, a denarius was a silver coin worth about 16 cents. It was an average day's pay for a working man. And grain was the main food source in the ancient world. And barley was the main grain for those who were poor. Because it was less expensive than wheat. And so a quart of wheat was the average daily consumption of a man. So here's what is going on. The picture is of a situation where scarcity prevails when it would take all that a man could earn, a denarius, a day's labor, to buy enough of the cheapest food 
for his family. It was 15 times the ordinary price of a meal. Does that sound at all familiar? I was thinking about ordinary things, and you know, things stick out to you. When I think one of the first times I filled my car up uh, when I first started driving, gas was $2.10 a gallon. Now, I know that's a lot compared to what some of you remember the first time. But two ten sounds pretty good right now. And the sad thing is we've been conditioned for it to sound pretty good. That's part of what's going on. I, I remember when I moved out uh, for the first time on my own and went and bought a gallon of milk. The price was um, $2.96 a gallon. And now it's like $6 a gallon or something crazy like that. We see inflation at work in our world. And you and I know from our own experiences what John saw, and that is that inflation often hurts the poorest the most. So what John's describing here is not just economic downturn, not just financial ruin, but but how it bears particular pain on those who are at the bottom of society's scale in terms of financial ability. John isn't talking about something that's far removed. He's not talking about something that's in another world or in the world to come or something that's a part of the final days of the earth. He's talking about something that happens in the ordinary story of history. We go through cycles and a part of the cycles of our civilization is, is economic rise and fall. You notice there that John talks about not just the price of of grain. He also talks about the, the oil and the wine. He says there, do not harm the oil and wine. Now, some people, they, they read this, if you, depending on who you're looking at. Some people will read this and say, well, these were luxury goods. And so this is sort of a staying of the hand on luxury products, and they're, they're going after the poor, but that's not the case. Because remember, in their world, oil and wine and grain are to them what what coffee and sweet tea and cornmeal are to us, right? It's the same thing, right? Those are staples in our homes. We, you, you know, you're going to have coffee, you're going to have tea, you're going to have. I mean, these are things that are they're in the pantry, right? They're they're a part of us. And so when the the staid hand of the Lord comes on oil and on wine, it's not to say we're protecting the the wealthy from uh, enduring economic hardship. It it is instead a demonstration of mercy that we'll talk more about in a moment. Then look at the fourth seal, verses 7 and 8. He says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. What John sees here in this pale uh, horse, the, the, the word for pale here is chloros. It's the word we get our word chlorophyll from. 
And it, it can mean green, it, it can mean a pale green, it can mean ashen. There, there's a few ways to translate this. And what John is describing is the pallor of death. Some of you know exactly what that looks like. When, when the physical body has been drained of its color. What John is saying is that the world that's full of life and vitality and fruitfulness, that this world is going to be affected by death and decay and destruction. And not just the ordinary death that comes as a part of living in a world that's marred and broken by sin, but also the intense times of difficulty and loss and pain and oppression that come when we rear our head in rebellion against God's creation and choose to bring destruction on other people. The key thing in John's description of this pale horse and its rider is what he says at the end of verse number 8. He says that its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, And they were given authority, and then notice what it says, over a fourth of the earth. That's going to be really important. Because one of the things that happens as we go through the revelation is that we see increasing measure of destruction. There's a fourth of the earth, there's a third of the earth, and then there will be the destruction of the whole. And as that destructive force proceeds, what we're doing is we're pushing closer and closer and closer to the great day of the Lord. One of the things that I think this tells us is that uh, those who may say, well, well, there is no, maybe, maybe this is not uh, really going to happen, that those who are in the amillennial camp and say, well, this is all uh, sort of allegory and it's not really going to happen and we just kind of die and go to be with the Lord, I think this speaks against that. I think it reminds us, no, actually there is increasing measure of destruction and decay and death and loss as we draw nearer to the approach of the Lord Jesus Christ for final time. But the other thing that it does is it settles us from thinking that we are the only people who have ever been through hardship or will ever go through hardship. When, when the writer says that death and Hades were given authority over a fourth of the earth, it's a reminder to us that the ways, the ways that they administer destructive force are not different. They are not different in quality than the kind of destructive force that will be administered in the Great Tribulation. They are only different in quantity. Here's what I mean. There's a camp. Some of you may be in it. It's okay. I promise it's okay. But there's a camp of approaching this book that says Christian people will not go through the Great Tribulation because God wouldn't allow us to endure that. And my response to that, humbly, is to say, God has allowed his people to go through tribulation since the very beginning of the life of the church. 
There has never been a time in the story of Christianity when the people of God have not endured destruction, loss, tribulation, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword. The earliest Christian people were forced to face the oppressive force of the Roman Empire that brought them to their knees and brought about the great loss of life through all manner, all manner of execution. And so what is being described here is the reality that a part of living in a broken, fallen world here in the ordinary part of human history is that we face destruction and there are evil forces that abound and they rear their head and they sometimes not only cause warfare and they sometimes not only bring about death, but sometimes they do it with such intensity that large swaths of the earth's population are destroyed. And yet even in the middle of that, it's measured. And a reminder to us, a reminder to us that God is in control and that as hardship intensifies, we can trust that the day of the Lord is drawing near. So I want to give you four implications of the story of ordinary human history as I see it in these first four seals. Number one, at the cutting edge of human history is the advance of Jesus' mission. Though it may seem that the darkness is taking over the world, the kingdom of God has come conquering and to conquer. We need not fear that the world is devoid of the Lord's true church. We need only find it around us, for it is still on the move. God is building his church. You don't have to doubt that. The church may not look like what it once looked like. Its growth may not happen in the same places that it once did. But as long as Jesus is building his church and as long as his kingdom is coming, then his people are on the move, making disciples and advancing his mission in the world. His kingdom is conquering and it is to conquer. Number two, the peace, the peace that is taken from the earth through warfare sets the stage for how peace will be restored to the earth, namely through warfare. It's the warfare of the sinful human heart against humanity made in the image of God that destroys the peace of earth. And it's the warfare of the cross where Jesus Christ gave his life in your place and in mine that he might accomplish our peace that restores it to the world. It's why Isaiah could say that he is the Prince of Peace because he is the one who restores it to a world that has long been in rebellion. Number three, Though God allows us to endure hardship in a sin-sickened world and will intervene at the last day to establish justice once and for all, he does mitigate our suffering even in this life. Though things are often terrible, they are not as terrible as they could be. Though things are often terrible, 
They are not as terrible as they could be. And the reminder of that is that when that third seal was broken and we see the force of economic downturn coming on the earth, God stayed that destructive power and did not allow the oil and the wine to be harmed as a way of saying that even in the midst of hardship and strife, the mercy of God abounds. Then lastly, the people of God will not face a tribulation different in quality but in quantity. The measuring of destruction in the breaking of the fourth seal reminds us that as God's people as residents of earth have always endured hardship of varying degree. However, the hardship will intensify the closer that the day of the Lord draws. So when you look around and you think that the world that we live in is getting worse, when it seems as though the the light of the gospel is not as bright, when it would seem that we're the only people following after Christ, in a world that's running from him. Just remember, we're getting closer. I do. I think we do. Yeah. 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 So the difference uh, that we talked about several weeks back is that we're, it's the difference between a a premillennial dispensational view and a classic premillennial view. And the dispensational view takes that the church doesn't go through the tribulation because God wouldn't allow his people to endure that kind of difficulty. That's the way that's normally put. But my my take on this, and it's what it's the historic view of the church. So dispensational premillennialism has only been around since the last part of the 1700s. For the first 1,700 years of the church's life, classical premillennialism was the accepted view. Um, and it takes back into account that the nature of the tribulation, of the, of the trouble, is not different in quality. It's different in quantity. So my contention is going through the tribulation is something that the church has been doing for 2,000 years. I think it could be. I think, but I think it depends. So this is this is where we're going to differ because it's going to depend on how you understand the tribulation, the rapture, and the second coming of Christ. So a premillennial dispensational view says that there is a rapture of the church, a seven-year tribulation. A, the second coming of Jesus, the establishment of a millennial reign, and then the battle of Armageddon that sets up you know, one final uh, battle of destruction, and then, and then we usher in eternity. So a classical premillennial view, which is what I'm subscribed to, says that there is a great tribulation that is possibly seven years 
or seven actually might be a, a number of completion because that's what it is. It's symbolically, it's a number that's complete or whole. And so taking that, there's this intense period of trouble, of difficulty, hardship, persecution that's going to come at the end of days, ramping up to the end of human history. At the end of that, that the church goes through along with the rest of the world, there is a rapture of the church and the second coming that are on the heels of each other. They're simultaneous events so that we're raptured and then the second coming, they happen, um, they're, not, they're not one event, but they happen on the heels of each other. And so uh, that's a, a view of 1 Thessalonians 4. And so with the rapture happening and the second coming happening, the church is caught up forever to be with the Lord and then immediately descends with him to establish his millennial reign That's the thousand years or the great time that he brings peace on the earth. And then at the end, it goes forward. So the the premillennial dispensational view and then the classical premillennial view are going to differ on that issue of how the tribulation and the rapture um, interact with each other. Yeah, no, it's good. We're going to differ. um, so, So my... My thought on this for a long time has been, and I've had some confirmation of it, is that the largely accepted view in the South is uh, dispensational premillennialism to the point that no other view has almost ever been taught. Um, the vast majority of people have never never known that there was another view. Growing up, I didn't know that there were other views. We were taught dispensational premillennialism and as though it were gospel. A lot of that goes back to the Schofield Reference Bible and its popularity. Schofield at DTS, uh, Dallas Theological, popularized dispensationalism, and so that's kind of taken hold. Of course, it got a, it got a real wave of influence through um, uh, the late great planet Earth in the 70s and then the popularity of the Left Behind series in the 90s and the 2000s. So that's sort of the common environment that most of us are in. But my take after going back through this multiple times um, is that that's that's not what's being presented. Um, So I'm going to present it from the classical premillennial view, and I'm not going to teach the others because to teach the others would only cause great confusion. Uh, but that's where that resource the uh, by Steve Gregg, the four parallel commentary where you get dispensationalism, classic premillennialism, uh, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, that the four different views through the whole book is helpful because it, it shows you, you know, if I'm, if I'm in this camp, then this is how this works out. If I'm in that camp, this is how it works out because uh, it will lead to some, some challenges at that point. But we can, here, here's, I think, one point that's helpful, um, and we'll close on this. Uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign over the whole world. And so the comfort is that regardless, we want to be faithful students of the word. We want to be careful in how we rightly divide it. And we want to be true to the conviction of the Holy Spirit as we work through it and be open um, 
be open to what the word says and making sure that we've we've done our research and we've studied it well um, and that we keep doing that because the more that we do it, the more we learn. Um, and I'm this I'm in that with you. Uh, but at the end of the day, we can we could all hold differing views. There could be people in the room that held one of all four views. And at the end of it, we still worship, serve and adore the same Christ and look forward to his reign. Um, and I just say that because not because you, Farrell, but 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 I come from the product of people who uh, who couldn't hold that kind of grace toward each other. My daddy and I, we used to argue about this vehemently uh, because he just felt that there's only one way and there's no other way. And we're not even going to talk about it. And I said, Dad, just look at the book. Let's just talk about the book. So we're going to talk about the book and we're going to agree to love the Lord and uh, be charitable towards each other. But but, yeah, there will be some places like that where we're going to. We're going to differ. Yep. It's okay. Absolutely. If we, if we did not differ, uh, then we probably wouldn't have a pulse. So anyways, anything else? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good day, for the hope that we have in your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that even in the ordinary part of human history, you are in control. We do face in the world that we live in the reality of bloodshed and warfare, the difficulties of hard economic times, and the, the reality, Lord, that there are systems of evil that are allowed to flourish at times and bring about great destruction in order to move history to its rightful end. And that's what you're doing. You are moving history to its rightful end so that one day, all the nations of the earth bring their glory into your kingdom and all of your enemies are made your footstool and all of your saints join with the living creatures and the elders and the angels in giving praise and glory to your name forever. So Lord, I pray that as we walk through this, we take comfort in knowing that you're the God who controls history and who moves it forward so that you accomplish our great good and your great glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.